0: Hello and welcome to the re Primary Review, where we cover the latest developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy, and feature discussions on issues affecting distressed debt, leveraged finance, direct lending, high-yield bonds, high-yield municipals, covenants, private credit, and middle market companies. I'm David Zupkis. This week, Gaurav Sharma, a reporter with re court credit team, speaks to Edward Altman, Professor Emeritus of Finance at NYU Stern's School of Business about his research on global zombie companies, including how to define and identify zombie firms, the current state of zombie firms, and how the current economic climate will affect them going forward. And as always, weekly review coverage and a preview of what's coming next week with Kate Thomas. We'd like to hear your feedback to help us improve the podcast experience. So please take a moment to complete the short survey at the link attached to this podcast and let us know how we're doing. It's Monday, July 31st.
1: Hello and welcome to the Reorg Prime Review. My name is Gaurav Sharma and I'm one of the reporters on America's core credit team. Today we're going to talk about the current state of zombie companies in the US and where they are headed in the next couple of years. And to discuss this, we couldn't have found anyone better than Dr. Ed Altman, the legendary bankruptcy guru who is a professor of finance emeritus at NYU Stern School of Business. Professor Altman also invented the z score formula to predict commercial bankruptcies. He's also a co-founder of Wiser Funding Limited based in London, Mumbai, and Italy, specializing in credit risk assessment of small and medium-sized companies. The professor is also working on a research paper that looks at global zombies. In fact, it was my great fortune to attend his classes in 2020, which turned me onto the world of distressed debt. And believe you me, it was very difficult to get hold of the professor as he was crisscrossing Europe, lecturing at various universities until the second week of July. Professor, it's an absolute honor to have you on the show.
2: Thank you very much, Gaurav, and it's a pleasure to be with you and Riyog.
1: How are you doing? And I'm just curious, where all were you teaching?
2: Well, uh, it's summertime now, and as you know, professors don't teach much in the summer, but I'm uh, finishing up some research, indeed, on this question of global zombies and a few other things, and just returned from a a very exciting... Uh, but very hot <laughs> period in Europe of um, uh, lecturing and uh, consulting, uh, especially with our company in London, was funding. So now we're um, we're back in the U.S. and uh, trying to relax a bit. But very happy to be with you today. Thank you, Professor.
1: Uh, So let's kick off. So can you please explain what these zombie companies are and how they came into being? And also tell us a little bit about your new paper on global zombie companies.
2: Thank you for bringing that up. Uh, Yes, our paper, by the way, which has been a work in progress for over one year now on global zombies, uh, looks at several aspects of this uh, enterprise enterprise a really unique type of corporate resiliency. It's like an alternative type, but generally thought in a negative way. Um, Let's first define what a a zombie firm is. Um, Basically, it's an insolvent company that has been insolvent for many years, but for some reason continues to survive. That they are supported uh, either by banks or uh, governments or uh, other types of investors, uh, or for some reason or other have the wherewithal to have um, a lot of distress, but uh, do not go bankrupt, liquidate or restructure uh, in a meaningful way. Now, our research focuses on the following. First, a unique way to define a zombie, because I should tell you that even though the term has been picked up by the media, there are a number of academic papers now focusing on zombie firms uh, globally. There's no standard uh, way that everyone agrees upon to identify a zombie firm. So our uh, main one of our main objectives is to propose a unique way to do that, one that anybody can calculate and um, observe. And then to compare the zombie um, uh, appearance and how significant it is across the 20 largest countries in the world based on GDP and look at the trend of zombie firms over the last 30 years. Then we look at a number of determinants by country of which countries have more and which countries have less zombies and why. Uh, Plus, we also answer the question of how zombie ferns were impacted by COVID-19 pandemic. So those are the broad objectives. Let's dive into the definition. I would say the most common definition and the one that the media generally uh, addresses because it's the most simple and... Some people think the best way to do it, even though we disagree, is firms whose interest coverage ratio is less than one, that is, their earnings or cash flows, I prefer cash flows, their cash flows are insufficient to cover their interest payments over a relatively long period of time. That is the standard definition. and. A number of people have used that definition, and to report that, indeed, that's a very common appearance of large numbers of companies. Indeed, in the United States, I've seen um, uh, media work on it, at least, who only look at that one sole definition with up to 20% of listed companies, listed companies, not uh, unlisted, that qualify as zombies based on interest coverage less than one for, let's say, three to five years. Now, we feel that while that is a relevant metric to look at, it is much too large, much too liberal, and there are many ways that a company can continue despite having earnings less than, or cash flows less than interest such as selling assets, such as doing a distressed exchange and uh, changing the debt uh, of the company or substituting equity for debt. You know, you're familiar, guys, of course, with distressed exchanges that take place quite a bit in the uh, high-yield bond market uh, and leveraged loan market. Um, also, these firms may be able to tap investors' Despite the fact that they don't have earnings to cover their interest for various reasons, uh, loan to own strategies on the part of uh, distressed investors, um, or they're strategic companies and the government uh, keeps them alive, even though they are basically losing money continuously and qualify as zombies, such as national airlines or firms that have an um, important strategic security related, military related uh, uh, aspect to their operation. So there are many reasons why the interest coverage ratio, which again is the most common definition, is in our opinion insufficiently uh, capturing, uh, a, in fact they captured too many uh, firms to call them zombies. We introduce a second metric You mentioned the Z-score. Well, a model we built more than 50 years ago, known as the Altman Z-score, is a model that looks at published financial information and stock price market valuation to identify companies that are likely to go bankrupt. Our argument is if a firm passes that test, so to speak, for several years, uh, at least a three-year moving average, but doesn't go bankrupt. That helps qualify them as a walking dead, a zombie firm. So our uh, identification, just to be clear, is a dual-filter approach. Two filters need to be uh, achieved to qualify as a zombie. One, interest coverage less than one for three years, and two, Z-scores less than zero, Current cutoff score in our Z score model, less than zero, also for a three year moving average. If they qualify for both, we call them zombies. And so that we hope will become more of a standard definition. And it is the basis for our global zombie paper, which uh, you mentioned at the outset and is now sitting with a major journal uh, for uh, uh, revisions and we're hoping will be published in the next six to 12 months. But it is available on SSRN, Social Science Research Network, or I can make it available to you, Gaurav, and you can send it to uh, your subscribers um, and uh, your your clients. Um, So that's our definition. Now let's move to how common they are, if that's okay, and we'll start with the United States. Is that okay to move on to that? Sure, absolutely. Okay. Well, the United States, that may surprise some people, actually has, over the years, had higher zombie ratios. That's firms that qualify as zombies as a percent of listed total listed companies, has had more than the average of countries throughout the world, a global average. And I'll get back to that in a moment. But our data shows that since 1990, the percentage of listed companies in the United States that have both interest coverage less than one and Z-scores less than zero for a three-year moving average for both have averaged, starting in 1990, about 5% of listed companies, and today about 8 to 9%. The historic global average today is around 7%. So I would say that we are uh, slightly higher than the historic average uh, for uh, all of the 20 largest countries over the period 1990 to uh, 2022. Now, um, That's one statistic. The global average, if if people are interested, actually is more dramatic in terms of the trend. Back in 1990, only 1.5% of global companies qualified as zombies. Today, uh, it's about 7%, as I said. So 7% of global firms qualify. Now, the um, uh, people who use the um, definition of uh, interest coverage less than one for three years, that number is close to 20%. And in fact, some countries like Canada and Australia, surprisingly to some, have an enormous number of zombie firms that, qua- that do not qualify, uh, uh, sorry, that qualify as zombies based on interest coverage less than one. Uh, and that's the reason. The reason is they have, a very large number of companies in Canada and Australia and a few other countries that are basically uh, um, shell companies that are listed on the exchange with the possibility that they will grow and uh, have uh, very high returns to investors. But they are speculative because they are mainly mining companies. And these mining companies generally have very little if no earnings for many years Uh, and therefore, if they have debt, they're gonna qualify as zombies in the uh, hope and um, speculation that they will uh, discover some um, uh, commodity or rare mineral or oil or whatever uh, and become a very um, uh, uh, successful uh, high return company. But for the most part, they fail uh, after many years of being zombies. Um, and I'll come back to what happens to zombies after they are identified, if you're interested later on. But back to the uh, conclusion then about global zombies, using our dual filter approach, we estimate that today the United States has little under 10% of, um, of their companies uh, that uh, qualify. Uh, and yet they continue. Um and um I think or we think one of the main reasons why a US company has a better chance to survive when first categorized as zombies is because of our sophisticated and very liquid <laughs> excuse me, um um capital markets. Now that might sound strange, a sophisticated capital market is actually promoting zombies. And I believe that's the case, because we have um, in the United States the ability of very marginal companies, perhaps with their rating, the lowest rating if they're rated or uh, shadow rating of something like triple C, way below investment grade and the lowest among the high yield uh, junk bond market. And yet, Over time, they've been able to tap the markets for new financing, particularly in high liquid periods. Uh, And this took place in the last couple of years until late 2022, when the liquidity of even the most risky companies was quite high. And I guess we have a lot of sophisticated investors who say, well, the company's losing money, it's selling at a low price and a high yield, very high yield, I'm gonna invest in it because I know better than the market. I know better than the average for triple C's, which by the way, uh, the uh, default likelihood of a triple C new issue in the United States over the last 40 years is close to 50% within five years. And yet they're able to get financing I estimate that uh, looking at data from the major rating agencies, that maybe about uh, 12 to 15% of all new issues in high yield bonds are rated triple C. Of course, that varies over time. Lately, it's much lower than that because of the tighter liquidity. But overall, triple C companies, I would say that more than half of which qualify as zombies. uh, are able to get financing. And that does not exist in most of the countries of the world. In fact, probably no other country is as liberal and um, taking risks uh, with the hopeful anticipation of high returns. Think of it this way, Gaurav. If I'm a, a investor in high-yield bonds or a distressed investor looking at um, bonds yielding 14 15%, Uh, which is now one definition of a distressed company on the uh, high-yield bond market. Um, You know, uh, in bonds and uh, in payoffs, there's uh, only two places you can go, heaven or hell. Heaven is you buy a distressed bond or a bond with a very high yield, and it goes back to par and pays off at maturity. That's heaven. So there you earn, of course, Um, uh, yes Uh, there you earn uh, a very high return uh, plus uh, capital appreciation so the generalization is that liberal financial markets help support zombies now how serious are having a lot of zombies in an economy well most economists believe that It's a misallocation of resources. Uh, And perhaps we can get into that in your next question. Uh, But uh, uh, I believe overall the negativity of having zombies outweighs the positivity of perhaps providing employment for for workers and strategic industries. So that's kind of a summary of our overall results from our research paper. uh, And I'm happy to answer all the questions.
1: Now, the second question is about the climate in the U.S., considering the economic climate the U.S. is in and interest rates uh, hikes by the Fed. What do you think is the future of these companies? Is bankruptcy the most
2: likely outcome? Well, first of all, uh, when we talk about zombies in general, we've done an extensive kind of retrospective study on what happens to firms that qualify as zombies after they do. And the answer is, um, a lot can happen to these firms. Uh, Some recover. I would say about, in the United States, about um, 10 to 15% of zombie firms actually start getting profitable enough to cover their interest, and their Z-scores rise above zero. So they kind of recover after three or four years of being zombies. Uh, or more. Uh, the the average time to recover is probably about two to three years after first becoming a zombie. Um, about twenty mm, percent go bankrupt within three years. But more than thirty percent get purchased by other companies more than likely at low valuations because their you know performance is subpar. But for some reason or other, they are attractive either through private equity firm acquisitions or um, uh, refinancing uh, these companies uh, and then they get purchased uh, in a refinancing um, uh, structure. So I would say about 30 to 35% uh, get um, purchased um, uh, and about um, 15 to 20% go bankrupt, about 15% recover so that's about um, another 60-70 uh, percent uh we have trouble finding some firms they change the name uh, and so um and um uh, so that that's been our experience um our paper explicitly uh talks about this so i will leave the fine details of that but um no they don't all go bankrupt um some recover some get purchased And and some do go bankrupt uh, or um, restructure under Chapter 11 uh, reorganization so they don't go out of existence. Uh, Interestingly enough, Gov, when you have a um, fairly uh, sophisticated, debtor friendly bankruptcy code like we have under Chapter 11, and additional countries are adopting. Uh, Chapter 11 lookalikes in their bankruptcy code, uh, like Japan and uh, uh, several European countries now, um, it actually reduces zombies. And the reason is when a firm goes bankrupt, they, of course, can either liquidate under Chapter 7 or 11, or they can reorganize successfully and emerge as a going concern. If they have to liquidate, and they're forced to liquidate because they can't find new financing, they can't find a purchaser, or they can't restructure their debt adequately, and their valuations are too low, then they go out of existence. And of course, if you go out of existence, you're no longer a zombie. Or if they restructure well and come out as a going concern with a lot less debt, a lot less interest to be paid, they also uh, are are no longer a zombie. So the more debtor friendly and better chance of reorganization under the bankruptcy code, the lower the zombies. And so this is one factor that lowers zombies in countries like the United States. Um, However, as I said before, there are uh, mitigating circumstances for zombie firms in the US. And I think, we think, Uh, The major one is the ability to tap all types of investors, debt and equity, distressed debt investors, new equity investors, high-yield bonds, leverage loans, uh, uh, to keep them going when uh, in, say, other countries they would probably have to liquidate. Um, Now you asked about current conditions. Well, clearly, with interest rates higher, Those companies that have uh, floating rate debt tied to inflation or tied to interest rate changes are going to have more trouble meeting their interest payments than companies that have uh, financed their debt uh, in the past under very low interest rates and their fixed payments, which are going to continue for several more years. Interestingly enough, 2023, which we've seen a big increase in bankruptcies, a big increase in default rates. We estimate that the default rate in the United States on high yield bonds in 2023 will be about three and a half percent. That's a little above the historic average. Most pundits, most forecasters uh, in the uh, default rate uh, field, you got to be crazy to do it, by the way, because it's fraught with challenges. Uh, but all the rating agencies and a number of investment banks, all of them, with maybe the exception of KBRA, are at much higher default rates in 2023. Time will tell, but so far through the first half of this year, the default rate is about 1.6% on high yield bonds and about 2.6% on leveraged loans. The 1.6% for high-yield bond default rates through the first half of this year will get us to about the historic average by the end of the year. And so while default rates are much higher than they were last year and the year before, they are still about average. But here's the question. Are they really average? And that has to do with whether or not we're going to have a recession that accompanies these higher interest rates and of course provides many, many more uh, likely bankruptcies, or are we going to have a soft landing or no landing and the country, as the latest data shows, with uh, 2.6% GDP in the second quarter, we may avoid a recession. My research has shown that if we observe several years in a row of rising default rates, but still at lower or average levels, if the subsequent years like 2024 and 2025 are coincident with a recession and these increasing default rates for several years, that is a harbinger, a forecast of A major spike in defaults, delinquencies, and credit rationing for uh, marginal firms and a liquidity problem. And it could even go to eight, nine, 10% default rates, which is one definition of a a credit uh, crisis. um, And of course, getting back to zombies, if we observe, and particularly we're talking about not this year, because the number of companies whose debt is coming due this year is very low. But 2024, there's going to be a big spike, and 2025 even higher in terms of new financing necessary for all high-yield and leveraged loan companies. And that will, if combined with a recession and higher interest rates, we're going to see a major increase in default rates. Of course, that is speculation on the state of the economy. There's no question in my mind that we're going to see rising default rates, even if we don't have a recession. But if we do, and with the enormous amount of debt that has been issued in the last several years, ironically, during a crisis pandemic period, um, we're going to see much more distress in the debt markets uh, and last thing I'd like to mention, if I may, I've been scratching my head, wondering why the required rate of return on the part of investors in risky debt, high bonds and leveraged loans, are still, even with these higher defaults and um, uh, more distress among companies, even with that, the required rate of return or the spread over risk-free treasuries is still below the historic average. Why are investors so sanguine about the default risk of risky debt when all the indicators that I'm looking at, or almost all of them, are pointing to a much higher default rate scenario in 2024 and 2025? Normally, they would be increasing their required rate of return, their spread over treasuries, which for high yield bonds averages around 5%. Right now, it's around 4% spread. So we're quite a bit below what I thought would be an appropriate risk premium on the part of investors. But it hasn't happened. And I'm scratching my head. You know, many times people say, well, the market is always right. And maybe these sophisticated investors know something that we don't know, but it seems to me that the required return, the spread, the risk premium should be higher than it is today. And therefore, we think that the number of zombies will increase, uh, especially if um, they do not uh, have to liquidate under a, um, a more stressful scenario. If they have to liquidate, then the increase in the zombies won't be as much. But I don't think that's going to happen, at least not for another six to 12 months. So hopefully that answers where we are today. Of course, someone once said, Gaurav, never forecast. But if you do, never put it in writing. But if you do, do it frequently, because you may be wrong in the short run and make up for it with changing your forecasts. I've always practiced a relatively um, not so frequent forecast, although, you know, with uh, demand on the part of uh, uh, our analytics for distressed debt and high yield uh, and leveraged loan defaults, uh, I'm uh, forecasting more frequently than I have in the past. Hopefully those answers your, your questions and I'm happy to speak to Anything else you'd like to ask about zombies?
1: Yeah. Just wanted to ask you about this. Uh, Sometimes it uh, it happens that these zombie companies manage to avoid bankruptcies and if they do, isn't it good for the economy?
2: Oh, yes. If they recover and start paying their interest uh, uh, sufficiently and um, uh, perhaps expand their operations, It certainly is going to help the employment situation by not going out of business and by, in fact, recovering and being able to hire more people, pay their taxes. Uh, So I think from a net-net standpoint, a reduction in zombies uh, to companies that are now profitable. Well, of course, they may have built up tax loss carry forwards enough to not pay taxes, but they certainly will probably um, be purchasing more from their suppliers, hiring more uh, employees. And so net-net, that is a real benefit to uh, the economy.
1: Very well explained, uh, Professor. Just wanted to know about how will restructurings work for these companies? Or can we expect more lender-on-lender violence in the coming years?
2: Well, uh, there are various types of violence, as you call it or I would call it creative uh, distress um, um, procedures to keep the firm alive. Uh, A very popular one now, especially among uh, the bond market, are these uh, uh, distressed exchanges. Um, And I would say most law firms specialize now uh, in saving a company or trying to save it first with an exchange. Either debt for debt, uh, longer maturities, changing interest rates, or uh, cash at a discount uh, to um, pay off the debt holder, or, and the most um, efficient one uh, from the firm standpoint anyway, is an equity for debt swap. And so the company swaps equity for debt and therefore has less debt, has less interest, and no longer qualifies as a zombie. Most law firms, are pretty um, advanced now in dealing with these, especially in the high yield bond market. Um, Now, the real question after that is whether or not that restructuring, which deals only with the capital structure of a company, is sufficient to turn around the company. And my research shows that 30 to 40% of Those types of restructurings, the so-called distressed exchanges, end up in bankruptcy anyway within three years. So it's like a band-aid, and it puts off, kicks the can down the road, the inevitability of bankruptcy. But fifty to sixty percent give the firm time to either recover, sell the firm to another company, probably at a low price, or uh, recover themselves. So, um, you know, uh, these distress exchanges, which I think are much more popular in the last 10 years than were before, but they were available even back in Michael Milken, um, Drexel Burnham days. We didn't call them that. We called them, you know, bailouts or whatever. But um, uh, these are um, tried and true techniques, much more uh, followed in the U.S. than in other countries. Um, The debtor seems to have more um, uh, power, if you will, in the U.S. than in most other countries in terms of proposing these exchanges. And the uh, type of distressed financing available in the U.S. uh, kind of exit uh, financing out of bankruptcy or even uh, direct lenders uh, offering new debt at very high interest rates especially if they're non-bank lenders, the so-called shadow banking industry, which is much more developed here, although it's increasing in Europe quite a bit and somewhat in Asia. Uh, Anyway, these exchanges definitely put off the inevitable for companies that file for bankruptcy later on, but in some cases do succeed, especially if the economy recovers in the interim time that has given the firm more time to be alive and be a zombie, if you will, uh, in this period. So that is another um, uh, determinant of zombie ratios in countries that have uh, sophisticated distressed exchange um, structure in place.
1: Okay, and the last question is about uh, opportunities for investors in these companies. What do you think about their prospects?
2: Well, this is a tough one for me uh, because don't forget, we've defined a zombie as having both interest coverage less than one and Z-scores less than zero uh, for at least three years. So that means that my models are saying this company will go bankrupt, but for some reason has not. Um, So um, if you're using models like mine or maybe others uh, that are out there, Uh, to uh, assess the future of distressed companies and the models say they're going bankrupt Um, uh, the outlook uh, is certainly bleak and for a a distressed investor who's using these models uh, they probably should uh, not get involved only about 10 to 15% as I said of zombie companies actually recover now if distressed investors get very active in the zombie field. And if they are able to provide their own new financing or through effective portfolio management by, for example, these distressed investors' impact on the um, changes in the company, then, uh, you know, uh, and if you're confident (laughs) that you're able to restructure a company, even if it looks like it's going under based on the Z-score, then, of course, uh, those companies will uh, prosper. Uh, I'm highly skeptical about investing too much in companies that both have interest coverage less than one and uh, for long periods of time look like a failing company. Unless you're quite confident that the management of the company needs change and uh, you know either based on the distressed investor himself or herself, or um, uh, dealing with a turnaround management firm effectively to turn around the company and they feel that they can do it, all the more power to them to try. Uh, I'm all for turnaround management. I think it's a great profession. Uh, I'm an advisor to the Turnaround Management Association. And they do great work if they have the ability of time to restructure the company, uh, especially if they're able to get uh, sufficient amounts of debtor-in-possession financing, which generally turn out to be uh, pretty good returns to the um, new investor or the old investor trying to uh, protect their uh, past loans. So, yeah, I think distressed industry, um, I prefer a strategy. Where the company is not yet looking like a bankrupt company, but is in distress for whatever reason, and that you're confident will not go bankrupt. That, I think, is a better strategy because then you get the best of potentially both worlds. If it doesn't go bankrupt, you get the higher yield plus the capital appreciation. And if it does go bankrupt and you're in a position to change around the management and the asset structure as well as the capital structure uh, and, and do it effectively, then uh, you might want to double down and buy the debt again after it goes bankrupt and provide exit financing in the uh, bankruptcy. So there are lots of opportunities out there. Sharpen your pencils. There's gonna be a lot of activity going forward. Um, right now, uh, last thing, Gaurav, I think I should mention, in case your audience is not familiar with it, but the uh, recovery rates at the time of bankruptcy today, the time of defaults is almost at an all time low of under 20% for corporate bonds on average. Historically, the recovery rate on a defaulted bond is around 45 cents on the dollar and about 65 cents on the dollar for corporate loans today year to date in 2023 it's about 20 percent or even below and that implies for firms that structure restructure uh, well a big uh potential um uh increase in, re- in in returns because you're buying it at a much lower price and there's not much further that it could go unless you own the equity and get wiped out but for debt investors Uh, I think it's a very exciting time to get in at these very low recovery rates, which has to do with supply and demand on the debt in the current market. I hope those answers your questions. It's been a great um, pleasure to me to be with you, but I'm happy to answer anything else in in case you have it, and of course, make our paper available to those who are interested further in zombie uh, activities.
1: Thank you professor thank you for thank you for your time and great insights it was a pleasure to have you on the show and hope you'll
2: be back with us soon thank you garav and good luck to you and uh your podcast thank you
0: York's first day product team published its review of case filings in the first half of 2023 this week. The year began strong. The first half of 2023 closed out with 228 cases large enough for our coverage, representing an 86 percent increase in filings from the first half of 2022, a 45 percent increase from the first half of 2021, and a 9 percent decrease from the first half of 2020. The consumer discretionary healthcare and real estate sectors had the lion's share of cases, with more than $10 million in liabilities, with real estate making up 21% of such filings, and consumer discretionary and healthcare each comprising 18%. Also, in the latest installment of the REORC Court Opinion Review series, REORC's Kevin Eckhart discusses the AMC settlement release decision and Endo's gifting strategy in its 363 sale process. Eckhart also discusses recent moves in the Siren Therapeutics bankruptcy and a recusal fight in the Highland Chapter Eleven. The recusal dispute focuses on two novels written by Judge Stacy Jernigan. To access Reorg's court opinion review and other premium content, please reach out to a Reorg representative. For eight court coverage, we take a look at Party City, Purdue Pharma, AT and T, Bestwell, and Voyager Aviation. Party City filed a revamp plan of reorganization last weekend after announcing in June that it had to reforecast its projections in light of an abrupt change in performance. The revised plan reflects a new agreement supported by 89% of holders of secured notes claims, the pre-petition ABL agent, and the official committee of unsecured creditors. The plan is premised on a substantially lower valuation. Debtors estimate that the reorganized enterprise value would range from $450 million to $775 million as of a September 30th effective date, in contrast to the range of $600 million to $925 million in the previous valuation analysis. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit denied the U.S. Trustee's motion, asking the court to stay its May 30th decision upholding the Purdue Pharmacy non-debtor's plan releases pending the U.S.T.'s petition for review of the ruling by the U.S. Supreme Court. In the motion, the UST said that the U.S. Solicitor General, which represents the federal government in the Supreme Court, has approved a petition for cert to be filed by an August 28th deadline. After media reports that AT&T's lead sheath telecommunications cables could pose a nationwide public health risk, AT&T announced that it is elected to vacate a 2021 consent decree to remove lead sheath cables in Lake Tahoe. The telecom company said that while it strongly disagrees with the reporting, the responsible course of action would be to delay removal of the Lake Tahoe cables to allow interested parties, including the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, to conduct an analysis. In a bench ruling issued last Friday, Judge Laura Beyer denied renewed motion to dismiss the Best Wall Texas two-step case filed by the official asbestos claimant committee and two individual claimants. The judge rejected the movement's argument that Bestwall does not belong in Chapter 11 because it is solvent thanks to a pre-petition funding agreement with the New Georgia Pacific Opco that received the bulk of the assets in the Texas divisional merger that created Bestwall. Aircraft leasing company Voyager Aviation filed pre-arranged Chapter 11 cases in the Southern District of New York on Thursday. Voyager said it was forced to restructure in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic, the war in Ukraine, and rising interest rates. Among Voyager's pre petitioned secured note holders, 77 support an RSA for a plan of reorganization under which the debtors would sell substantially all assets for $743.5 million to Azora Explorer Holdings Limited. All secured and unsecured creditors of the aircraft owning entities would receive full payment in cash, according to the first day papers. The debtors said they intend to fund the cases with $25 million of cash on hand. This week, Rear reported on new advisor engagements from Pretium Packaging, Zeo Group Holdings, Packer Sanitation, and Trilliant Food and Nutrition. The largest lenders to Pretium Packaging signed non-disclosure agreements is the company and sponsor Clear Lake Mo Options to support the cash plastics manufacturer. With Aries, KKR, Canyon Capital, and Blackstone in talks and inject new money. Currently, the restricted lenders have about 20% to 30% of the first lien term loan and 30% of the second lien, according to sources. An ad hoc group that organized with Davis Polka's council and which is growing in size has about 45% of the first lien term loan and is aiming to represent a majority. An ad hoc group of lenders to Zayo has mobilized and consulted Gibson Dunn for advice. Despite a lack of near-term triggers, investors are proactively analyzing debt documents to the extent cash burn does not stop and liquidity is pressured. Free cash burn totaled $596.3 million in the LTM period because of the capital-intensive nature of that communications infrastructure business. Revenue and EBITDA margins also underperformed LBO expectations. An ad hoc group of lenders to Packer Sanitation Services is working with Davis Polka's council as the Slaughterhouse Cleaning Company loses customers in the wake of a child labor investigation by the Labor Department. Even though there may not be an imminent trigger, investors proactively sought advice from counsel in case customer loss leads to persistent performance deterioration that results in a liquidity crunch. An ad hoc group of food and nutrition lenders has organized Davis Polk ahead of the company's 295 million L plus 350 BIPs 1st lien term loan B maturity date due September 2024. The Little Shoe, Wisconsin-based manufacturer of private label and value-branded beverage products was downgraded in May 2023 by S&P Global, reflecting uncertainty around Trillian's ability to refinance its debt maturities and high leverage. Top Red Stories this week included Mitel up-tier participants seek dismissal of Nuveen Group's cross-claims, say partial participation in exchange bars Nuveen Group from challenging transactions, 16 debtors file for bankruptcy protection in North America. Altis subordinated bonds sink after police detain COO. China high yield bonds dive again on negative news. UST discloses final exclaim agent settlement. BMC group to pay aggregate of $60,000 to various debtor estates. Aldrich Pump ACC rejects debtors' call to revoke its standing to challenge Texas two step merger. Says motion borders on frivolous. And now here's Kate Thomas from New York with The Week Ahead.
3: Welcome to The Week Ahead. My name is Kate Thomas. A longer schedule of this week's events, including earnings releases, can be found on the Reorg website under America's Week Ahead. Here are a few highlights. On Monday, the party city debtors are scheduled to seek conditional approval of a disclosure statement supplement for their amended Chapter 11 plan. The debtors filed an amended plan last week after announcing an abrupt decline in business performance back in June. Among other changes, the amended plan includes a newly structured equity rights offering, amends the treatment of pre ABL lenders, and provides dip backstop lenders with a new non-cash takeout option. The Envision Healthcare and Amster debtors have a packed agenda on Wednesday as they push toward plan confirmation. The debtors will be seeking approval of their disclosure statement and authority authority to execute commitment agreements for a first lien exit facility and for the backstop of a $300 million equity rights offering. The exit facility would be used to pay off pre-petition AMSURG first lien loan claims. The rights offering would fund the purchase of AMSURG entities from Envision. Also on Wednesday, the Official Unsecured Creditors Committee and the Senior Noteholder and Crossholder Ad Hoc Groups will seek to intervene in SVB Financial Group's adversary proceeding against the FDIC. The debtor filed the adversary proceeding to recover from the FDIC almost $2 billion of account funds that the debtor alleges is due and payable. The debtor says the FDIC is wrongfully withholding these funds in violation of the automatic stay and other legal obligations. Last up, on Friday, the endo-debtors have their sale hearing to approve the sale of substantially all their assets to stocking horse bidder TenSor for a six billion first lien credit bid. The debtors reached settlements with parties including the Opioid Claimants and Unsecured Creditors Committees earlier this year. However, opposition to the sale and these settlements remains. The U.S. government, the U.S. trustee, and others argue the sale and related settlements would funnel distributions to favored creditors over governmental priority claims. The debtors and sales supporters, however, argue that there is no value in the estate for junior creditors and that the acquisition vehicle, not the debtors, will be making settlement payments. That's it for now. For more on the week ahead, including a packed schedule of earnings releases, check out America's Week Ahead on the Reorg website. Have a great week!
0: Thank you again for tuning in to the Reard Primary Review and our weekly review. Find all our podcasts on the Reark.com webinars and podcast page, as well as Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, and Amazon. Hope your families are healthy and safe. Have a great week and see you next Monday.